It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of February 3rd, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Occasionally, people ask me what the best backup system is, and the answer is almost always unsatisfying because my answer is it's the one you'll use. People expect me to give them a name of a product or an online backup service or something, not just the one you'll use. Well, of course, I have some suggestions, and there is more to it than just the one you'll use, but that's a very important consideration. The system I use probably isn't the best system for you, but it works for me. Instead of keeping everything in a single backup, I have multiple overlapping backups. I'll try to describe the system I use. Maybe you'll find some information in there that will help you plan a failure-resistant system that's also easy for you to use. Backup is a topic that I talk about fairly frequently, and that comes up because of questions like this. This is a question I received a week or so ago. A friend's father made a major mistake online. He clicked on a pop-up saying that his PC was infected with all kinds of nasty things. As we all know, that was a sad mistake, and now his system crawls along with major disk thrashing. The system hasn't been backed up, so the pictures and who knows what else will be blown away if we have to reinstall XP on it. My friend has run SpyBot and AdAware, but after fixing many issues, the machine still crawls. I've suggested putting the free AVG on it to see if that helps. I've also suggested running Windows Defender. I know there are online scanners, but since that's how this whole folly started, I don't want my friend to pick the wrong site and make matters worse. Do you know of any online scans that can be trusted? Any other suggestions? There are several ways to get rid of the crud, but it's probably bullet-biting time. The online scanning systems are good as long as you go to a reputable site, but you're still probably going to be left with junk you don't want, and he still won't have a backup. Those pictures and all the other important information should be backed up, so now is the time to do that. Since the computer is running XP, it probably has a USB port. If not, they're easy to add. For less than $100, you can obtain a reasonably large 250-gigabyte external hard drive. For about $100, maybe a little over $100, you can obtain a 500-gigabyte external hard drive. Plug that in, back up the critical files. And yes, that could take some of the nasty wear with it. But once that's done, you're sure you have all the important files backed up. Then you can format the drive, reload the operating system, once the operating system is operational again, you copy the data files back to the hard drive from the external unit. Yes, you'll have to reinstall all the applications, but at least you'll have all your data. So as far as determining what your backup strategy is going to be, you first want to think about what kind of information you have on your computer, how important it is to you, and how long you could wait to get it back. You may have, for example, game scores on your computer, depending on how intense a gamer you are, those may be very important or not very important at all. You may have pictures. You may have financial information. Those are probably pretty important to you. Depending on what the information is, you might be able to wait a while to get it back. If you have a lot of photographs and something happens to them, maybe you have an online backup service that would take you a few days to get the pictures back. Okay, that's probably acceptable. If your computer is responsible for business records, 
you probably don't want to wait a few days to get your financial stuff back. Well, now, by far the easiest system to use is called Carbonite. It's an online backup service, offers to store all the data on your computer's internal hard drive or drives for about $5 a month. That is a remarkable value. Carbonite doesn't back up data on external drives or from network drives. And the restore process, when you need it, is going to take a while because your files have to be downloaded from Carbonite's server. Carbonite is key to my backup plan because that's where all of my digital photographs, websites, data files, graphics, publishing files, and all that are stored. But I also store these files on an external hard drive that lives at my office. And to allow recovery from the occasional oops event, the kind involving instances of, oh, I didn't mean to delete that file, Well, I keep a local hot backup on an external drive that stays with the computer. So in the event of a catastrophic system failure, I can plug in that hot backup drive to a notebook computer and be back in operation within about a minute. Should I accidentally damage or delete a file that I'm working on, restoring that file from the external hard drive takes just a few seconds. If a hard drive crashes and I need to restore everything on the drive... I would probably first retrieve the external hard drive from the office and restore files from there. I would do that because I could start the restoration process in less than an hour. That's the amount of time it would take me to get to the office, get the drive, bring it back here, plug it in. Once that was done, I would connect to Carbonite and restore any files that had changed since the last backup. My local backups are done weekly, so there can be a significant amount of file change between those backups. Carbonite picks up the slack there. So I figure this process would take probably no more than about half a day to restore everything. Now, not everything needs to be backed up. I keep a local backup copy of music files, but currently I do have enough space on my backup drive Y, which handles local drives M and N, to include all the music. Should space become really critical, I'll just remove the music files from the backup. It would be a major annoyance to have to reconstruct all the directories from the original media, but it could be done. It would just take time. Much of the music is on a drive that I keep at the office on an external USB drive that connects to a real old and almost an antique G3 Mac that serves as kind of an oversized iPod. Now, if you check the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a diagram that shows you how my backup works. Drive C, the operating system and all the programs, get backed up on a drive called W. Drive D, which is where the data files, graphics, websites, digital camera images, and all those things live, those are backed up on a drive that is drive letter X. And these are all the external drives that live at the office. Then drives M and N, which are multimedia and just a kind of a general work directory, all get backed up onto another drive called Y. The most critical files from all four of those drives get backed up to the local hot backup drive, which is Z. And all the critical files from C and D are also backed up by Carbonite. That actually sounds a lot more complicated than it is. Carbonite performs backups in real time, which means that files are backed up soon after being added or changed. I make incremental backups to the external drive, as I mentioned, once a week. The hot backup drive should be refreshed at least once a day, but sometimes that doesn't happen. It should. My fault. Work files, such as audio for TechBiter Worldwide, are routinely backed up, but I also purge those files every few months. 
Quite simply, I'm never going to need to go back and change one of the recorded programs, so there's no need to keep the raw input files. I still have the MP3s. Any of the intermediate files used for any kind of project, all of those candidates for elimination. So depending on your needs, those files may or may not be important. If you need to go back and revisit a video or audio project, you may want to keep all of your intermediate files. The most important files for me are the ones that I have spent time creating, Word documents, InDesign publications, logos, websites, and the like. These kinds of files will be on Carbonite server, on my off-site backup, and on the hot on-site backup. If you don't have an external backup device of some sort, a hard drive, CD, DVD, or even an old tape drive, and you're not yet using an online service, you should at least create a new directory on your hard drive and copy the most critical files there. That's a little bit of protection. But two serious warnings apply here. First, the default Windows operation for files that are dragged and dropped to a new location on the same disk drive is move instead of copy. So to copy the file, you need to drag it with the right mouse button and then select copy from the menu. If you move the file, it's no longer going to be in the old location and you're still going to have just one version of it. Second, keep in mind this is not a real backup. Copying a file to a new location on the drive will protect it against accidental erasures and other similar kinds of problems. It will not protect against hardware failures, weather, tornadoes for example, or malicious code that gets loaded onto your computer. If something gets loaded on the computer that destroys all of your MP3 files, all of the copies of your MP3 files will be damaged. So it's a simple step. It's inadequate, but it still can solve some problems. Have you ever opened a file to use as a starting point for something, made a bunch of changes, and then forgot to save the file with a new name or to a new location? You overwrite the old file, but it was a file you wanted to keep? Well, if you had a copy of the original file handy, you could get it back. So it protects against things like that. The single most valuable part of your computer is not a piece of hardware. It's the data stored on the computer. Twenty years ago, backup meant making a copy of a floppy disk with your Lotus 123 spreadsheet on it. Things have changed. High Tech Circa 1900. I've mentioned a time or two that I don't watch a lot of television, at least not live. Since the arrival of my Netflix gift certificate, I have watched recent movies old movies, sometimes entire series of old TV programs. An interview on NPR's Fresh Air with Victor Garber, the actor who played Jack Bristow in Alias, convinced me to watch that series on DVD. In fact, there's a new term for what I did. It's called binge-watching. Watch the entire series in the space of several weeks. I mention Alias because the central theme of the program was Milo Rimbaldi, an inventor, prophet based on conflating Leonardo da Vinci and Nostradamus. Prophecies can be dangerous things, as those in the series learned. Well, that thought occurred to me on New Year's Eve. It was that time that I happened to find myself knee-deep in a technology corner program from June of 1998, ten years ago. New Year's Eve is always an exciting time around the house. In lieu of dusting the cat, I had decided to rearrange some of the older web files so that I could get rid of the clutter in the web root. 
and I happened to run across these words that stopped me cold. Now a good flat panel screen is as good as a standard screen, in some ways better. Flicker isn't an issue. Power consumption is a lot lower. A flat panel screen won't take up half your desk. There's no warm-up time, and they don't emit heat, radiation, or nasty magnetic fields, I wrote in 1998. The new panels also have a wider viewing radius, meaning you can see what's on the screen even if you're not exactly in front of it. Given all those advantages, why don't we all have flat panel screens? Cost. A top-of-the-line 17-inch standard monitor will cost you $800 to $1,200. A good 17-inch flat panel screen will cost you $2,400 to $3,000. Well, today you can find a 17-inch flat panel screen for less than $200. What else was big news 10 years ago for me? Think about it. Almost everything has changed. Floppy disks went from 8-inch disks that held 160 kilobytes of data to 3.5-inch disks that hold 1.4 megabytes or more, sometimes a lot more. Hard disks went from 10-megabyte drives the size of a shoebox to 8-gigabyte drives the size of a sandwich. 8-gigabyte drives. Processors that once ran 4.77 megahertz now have hit 400 megahertz. CD-ROMs have arrived. Modems have become faster and may soon be replaced by cable devices. Fast forward to this year. Now it's hard to find a computer with a floppy drive in it. We have bootable CDs and DVDs and bootable USB drives. You can hardly find a desktop system with a drive smaller than 250 gigabytes. Processors are well above 3 gigahertz dual core. Modem users are in a shrinking and almost vanishing minority. By 2018, 10 years hence, today's specs are going to seem hopelessly outmoded. Some other big news from 1998. Network Solutions dropped domain registration fees from $50 a year to $35 a year. Well, today you're going to find that you can get most domain names from most registrars for about $10 a year, and sometimes they have sales that take it down to about half that. Even in 1998, I recommended that the best way to ensure that your email address remains constant is to buy your own domain name. I said at the time, on the air I tell you to send me email at WTVN, bblin at 610wtvn.com. But that address will no longer be good if the station should decide that it no longer wants my services, which it did about five years later. That was why I had purchased Blinn.com and later TechBiter.com. Well, about the time I was looking through all that information, I ran across an article by John Elfrith Watkins, Jr. from the December 1900 edition of the Ladies' Home Journal. Watkins had posed questions about what the world would be like in 2001 to the most learned and conservative minds in America. All of them happened to be men, of course, even though this was the Ladies' Home Journal. Along with a few correct prophecies, these great thinkers predicted laughable conditions that they thought would have come to be by 2001. Examples. There will probably be 350 million to 500 million people in America and its possessions. Well, actually, that's fairly close. The population's around 300 million. There will be no streetcars in our large cities. That's correct as far as it goes, but the rest of that prediction is pretty laughable. All hurry traffic, by which I believe they mean rush hour traffic, will be below or high above ground when brought within city limits. 
In most cities, it will be confined to broad subways or tunnels, well-lighted and well-ventilated, or to high trestles with moving sidewalk stairways leading to the top. These underground or overhead streets will teem with capacious automobile passenger coaches and freight with cushioned wheels. Subways or trestles will be reserved for express trains. Cities, therefore, will be free from all noises." Man will see around the world by cameras connected electrically with screens at opposite ends of circuits thousands of miles at a span. The instrument bringing these distant scenes to the very doors of people will be connected with giant telephone apparatus. Well, that may be the most accurate prophecy by the most learned and conservative minds in America back in 1900. Trains will run two miles a minute normally. Express trains 150 miles an hour. I list that as a hit, because it's true in Europe and Asia. And then there were the ones that were really off target. There will be no C, X, or Q in the everyday alphabet. The prediction was that we would all spell by sound. Although if you look at any text messaging, maybe that wasn't so far off after all. They also predicted a university education will be free to every man and woman. The Age of Enlightenment there still eludes us. They also predicted that everyone will walk 10 miles. It doesn't say whether they'll walk 10 miles during their lifetime, 10 miles a day, 10 miles an hour, but they'll walk 10 miles. I think they meant 10 miles per day. Gymnastics will begin in the nursery. All cities will have public gymnasiums. A man or woman unable to walk 10 miles at a stretch will be regarded as a weakling. Big-time miss. How many Americans wouldn't be able to walk even 10 blocks? There will be no wild animals except in menageries. Cattle and sheep will be unable to run faster than the fattened hog of today. Food animals will be bred to expend practically all of their life energy in producing meat, milk, wool, and other byproducts. Horns, bones, muscles, and lungs will have been neglected. Sadly, too much of that is true. Animals used for food are often mistreated, and it's not only PETA that finds these practices inhumane. If you'd like to see the full article, and it is an interesting article, given that it's now more than 100 years old, there is a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Is Microsoft turning its back on Vista? There has been no small amount of chatter recently about Windows 7. That's going to be the version that follows Vista. And there are rumors that it will be released as early as 2009. Microsoft typically gets things right on the third iteration of a project. Well, this would actually be the second iteration of Vista. It's a high-stakes deal. They really need to get it right. Currently, a lot of us are just waiting and hoping that Service Pack 1 for Vista will solve some of the worst problems. I've had a lot to say about Vista. Hot and cold, good and bad, yes and no. I like it, I don't like it. Vista has a lot of good features. It also has a lot of sharp edges. Sales of Vista have been far lower than Microsoft had hoped for, and that may be pushing the company to aim for 2009 instead of 2010 for Vista 2. They won't call it that, of course. A leaked roadmap for Windows 7 suggests an accelerated development schedule with three milestone builds yet this year. The first has already shipped to key partners for code validation. The next milestone release will probably be out mid-year, third one most likely in the third quarter. Milestone releases are still alpha code. Beta testers and end users won't see that code. Windows 7 is expected to be the final 32-bit operating system from Microsoft. You know, it wasn't that many years ago that 
8-bit operating systems were standard, 16-bit operating systems were for advanced users, 32-bit systems were projected for the future, and 64-bit systems were little more than a pipe dream. Assuming Windows 7 is released in the second half of 2009, it will have been only three years since Vista's release to manufacturing. And this could be Microsoft's last chance to get it right. The transition to Vista has been slow. A lot of corporate users are still stuck on Windows 2000. That's a seven-year-old operating system. More XP users than Microsoft would like to admit have upgraded to Vista, then downgraded to XP. So the next couple of years should be interesting with Apple's dual-platform-capable systems and various Linux distributions that bring low-cost systems and applications to everybody. In nerdly news, recently Bill Gates talked about Google, called them the most interesting competitor Microsoft has. Not that the two giants compete a lot in the same market areas. But Gates has talked about Microsoft's getting better at search and about surprising Google. Well, surprise! Microsoft, after talks with Yahoo broke off, has now announced plans for a hostile takeover and is willing to pay a hefty premium for Yahoo stock to get it. Is Yahoo really worth $44.6 billion? That's a 62% premium over the stock's recent selling price. Microsoft apparently thinks it's a good deal. Steve Ballmer said that he decided to take the hostile takeover route because talks between the two companies would quickly become public. Microsoft says the combination would create efficiencies that would save approximately $1 billion annually, so Microsoft would earn back its investment in a slim 44 years. There might be something else in play here, too. Microsoft says it already has an integration plan in place and will offer incentives to retain Yahoo employees. Microsoft's announcement noted that the acquisition could receive the regulatory approvals required fast enough to close during the second half of 2008. I have to wonder what the European Union will think of that. It's probably a good thing that the Recording Industry Association of America doesn't yet write all of the nation's laws. If it did, the penalty for jaywalking would probably be amputation of a foot on the first offense, amputation of a leg on second offense, and death for a third infraction. Maybe that seems a little extreme to you. I think it would not to the RIAA. How about the RIAA's recent proposing of a fine of $1.5 million for copying a single CD with 10 songs on it? $150,000 per selection. The RIAA had already managed to convince legislators to approve laws that set fines for copying a selection you could buy for 99 cents from the iTunes Music Store at more than $9,000. And as astoundingly high as that is... Could you imagine $150,000? Fines for some serious felonies are far lower. What makes the RIAA believe that copying a single track of a single CD should be worth a $150,000 fine? And this nonsense is actually being considered by the U.S. Congress. It's in the Pro-IP Act. Pro-IP is another one of those cutesy little congressional acronyms that stands for Prioritizing Resources and Organization for Intellectual Property Act of 2007. Why does every damn piece of legislation have to come with some Madison Avenue name attached to it? There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website to the act itself. Instead of charging a per-CD fine, which was ridiculously high already, 
The RIAA wants those who copy CDs to pay for each selection independently. One wonders how they would treat CDs with 30 or 40 tracks of short selections versus symphonic CDs, which might have only three or four. Does anybody else think that these guys should be taken to the woodshed and introduced to a little reality check? I think Google's primary copyright lawyer, William Patry, does. He calls the bill the most outrageously gluttonous intellectual property bill ever introduced in the U.S. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of February 3rd, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you'd like, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.